Okay, today we're going to start out with a moment of application. We've been reading through Isaiah, we've been studying through Isaiah, and one of the things that we need to be aware of and that we need to look into this for application for our lives is that these people that were taken captive, God's people that were taken captive into Babylon, they seem to be adopting their worldview. And so this is a good time to pause for a minute for a point of application about worldview. And I especially want to talk to you or aim this at the beginning for you young people because you've got many years left uh, to develop your worldview. Us older folks over here pretty much have our worldview established. <coughs> now, like I said, Israel, the people of God, the covenant people of God, have gone to Babylon. And they are sinking into their paganistic worldview. They have to be. Because if you turn to where we are, which is Isaiah 51. We see it starts out. God says, listen to me. And then He says, look to the rock on which you were hewn. Look to Abraham. And also verse 4, pay attention to me, O my people. And verse 6, He says, lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. And then he says in verse 7, Listen to me, you who know righteousness. Verse 21, he says, Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted. And this has been going on not only in this chapter, but in several chapters. And it's what we're seeing here is people that are being so influenced by culture that they're of no use to God. And that's exactly what our culture is wanting to do to the church. They are wanting us to be absorbed into their culture where we will be of no use to God. So this is a good place to stop and examine their true problem, which is their worldview, and try to uh, encourage you to read your Bible more faithfully and to pray more faithfully and to learn about false worldviews. Now, we see here that God is telling them, you need to listen, you need to look, you need to know what's going on. And so He's telling them, use your eyes, use your ears, let's see, so that you'll know what is going on. You need to listen to Me. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. <coughs> Now, this is seems to always have been a problem. And Kim, if you'll read for us, and let's all turn there to 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, we're going to read this, and then I'm going to explain why Kim read it. Why I'm having Kim to read it. Kim don't know why he's reading it. Alright, 1 John 1, the first... Uh, three verse, first three verses actually will cover. 
That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which ye have seen with these our eyes, which we have looked upon, and these hands of ours have handled of that word of life, for that life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest unto us. That, I say, which I, we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you may also have fellowship with us, and that our fellowship also may be with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice in these verses, the Apostle John says they've seen Jesus, they've heard Him, they've touched Him, and uh, He was manifested, and so they have all this what we would call sense die. Sense die. They see Him, they feel Him, they hear Him. And um, the reason I'm bringing this up is that there are competing worldviews with the biblical worldview that we hold. This is what the people in Isaiah's time were struggling with. This is what the people in John's time were struggling with. And we're struggling with it mightily here. There are unbelieving philosophies that we need to be aware that there are. We don't have to know all of them. But we need to be aware that unbelieving philosophy threatens our minds. We're in a, in a war. And we need to um, realize that even a lot of believing philosophies and philosophers are trying to uh, take our minds off of the mind of Christ. <coughs> so, just for a few minutes, I want to discuss this today. Now, there is an unbelieving philosophy that started at the beginning of the Renaissance and is carried over from Renaissance to the so-called Enlightenment. Um, it's called rationalism. Now, we fall into these things a lot more often than we think we do. And so this application is kind of a warning, especially to young people. Um, this rationalism is the thought that um, we can only learn truth through rationalizing things, through thinking through things. This is where you sit back in your armchair, armchair and you try to figure things out apart from God's revelation. It's dangerous, and I'm going to show you why. The first philosopher of our modern era, modern era was a guy named Rene Descartes. And he was a pure rationalist. And he was a believer. He was a professing believer. But he makes the argument that you cannot trust your senses. You can only learn through rationalization. Okay? Now, it's what he ended up teaching was that since data is worthless, you can only learn through rationalization. And he came to the conclusion that there's only two substances. There's mind and body. I keep that in mind. It's just mind and body. There's nothing else. Or mind and matter, excuse me. Mind and matter, not body. But mind and matter. And then we have the next. These three that I'm going to mention to you are all off the continent of Europe. So Descartes is the first rationalist 
And that was followed closely by Benedict, Benedict Spinoza. Spinoza is another believer. But he, just like Descartes, tried to do philosophy without God's revelation. He believed that the only way to learn is by rationalization. You can't learn anything through your senses. He ended up being what's called a monist. Everything is composed of one thing. In other words, he was a pantheist. So we have the first rationalist that tries to do philosophy without uh, referring to God's Bible. He's a dualist. He's a dualist. There's mind and there's matter. The second one is a pantheist. A monist. There's only one thing, and that's God. Everything is God. God is everything. And then we have a third one to come along. Gottfried, Gottfried Leibniz. Leibniz. Excuse me, Leibniz. He is also a rationalist off of the continent of Europe. And he's, he says you can only learn through rationalization. You can't learn anything through your senses. He also ignored special revelation, but he was a professing Christian. And he was what we know as an atomist. Everything is composed of little particles of matter. He called them monads. Very similar to atoms, as we know of atoms today. But he was an atomist. There are innumerable objects. The, the universe is composed of innumerable objects. So here we have three men that claim that you can come to absolute truth through rationalization without even using your senses. <clears throat> but they do not use God's revelation to figure things out. And what do we do? We have one that's a dualist, one that's a monist, and one that's an atomist. Three totally different things when they say you can rationalize yourself to the truth. Now, for one thing, I don't agree with them with them that you have to learn everything through rationalization. You, you do need to use um, logic and rationalize things out. But that doesn't mean the senses are of no use. The Apostle John shows senses are use, useful. Um, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of God. Now, if that ain't enough, we have some philosophers from Britain, Great Britain, three of them. They are the um, empiricists. Empiricism says that you have, you have to learn through your senses. That's the only way you can learn. Whereas the rationalists say that you can't learn anything through your senses. But John Locke was the first of the British empiricist. And he, he says, in fact, you're born with a mind that's blank. Tabula rasa. You come into this world with nothing in your brain. No innate ideas. Which is, of course, uh, runs straight up against Romans chapter 1. You have innate ideas of God and His law. But anyway, he was a professing believer, but he did not use God's revelation. He ignored it. 
Okay, another one that came along is a man named George Barclay. It looks like it's uh, uh, George Barclay, yeah. His name looks like Berkeley, but it's pronounced Barclay. And he, he takes it to the next level. He even denies that there is material substance. Now, he was a professing believer, uh, but he tried to do philosophy apart from God's revelation. And then we finally come to David Hume, who is hostile to Christianity. He takes empiricism to its natural conclusion that the truth cannot be known. It finally comes down that the truth cannot be known. It's called skepticism. So here we have intelligent men, probably a lot more intelligent than any of us in here, but they were trying to figure out this world apart from God's revelation, ignoring His worldview, and we have three rationalists that come to three totally different conclusions about what the universe is made of, and then we come to the empiricist who finally admit you can't know anything. So those are the kind of things we're subjected to. Right. Let me have <clears throat> Colossians 2, 8 through 10 read and turn to that too. And Elaine's going to read that for us after we all get there. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10. And here's a nice warning for all of us. After Keep in mind what I've just said. Okay? And see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been, have been filled in Him, who is the head of, the, of all rule and authority. Okay. Paul is not knocking down philosophy here. He is saying, be very careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy according to the traditions of men and rather than according to Christ. Just like the people in Isaiah's day, we need to be very careful that we do not let unbelieving philosophies take us captive. And we are in a very dangerous place. There's a lot of different philosophies competing for our minds. So we need to make sure that we're rooted and grounded in the Scriptures. That what no one does take us captive. Now, after reading that, it's what I want to read. I'm just going to give you an example here of how careful we have to be. This is where it all started in the Renaissance and the so-called Enlightenment. It is from René Descartes. He was the first one that said that you can't depend on your senses, that you have to rationalize everything, and you have to do it apart from God's Word. 
Now these people are give you what Paul calls in verse, if you look back up to verse um, well, there's somewhere in there it says fine sounding arguments or in verse 8 it's called empty deception. Other translations say about fine sounding words or fine sounding arguments. Now these, un- these competing worldviews with Christianity they're very subtle. They don't just come out and say, oh, your Christianity is wrong. This is what you've got to believe. They're very subtle. It's fine-sounding arguments. And the very first philosopher of modern philosophy understood that. And Rene Descartes, he's a rationalist. And here's what he says. It's the first book uh, uh, in modern philosophy is Meditations on First Philosophy. And I want to read you what he says early in this argument. It's just a sentence. All that I have up to this moment, he's talking about his prior life, and possessed of the highest truth and certainty, I received either from thought or senses. In other words, he was bought up a rationalist. He says, I observe, however, that these sometimes mislead us, and it is part of prudence not to place absolute confidence in that by which we have even once been deceived. Now, um, there, there's really not a whole lot wrong with that statement. You don't place absolute confidence in your um, <clears throat> in your senses apart from divine revelation. Okay? So that doesn't sound too bad. Next part of his meditation, he says, we will therefore perhaps reason illegitimately if we conclude from this that physics, astronomy, medicine, and all other sciences that have for their end the consideration of composite objects are indeed of a doubtful character. So he says, okay, now all these things that you take in through your senses, they are doubtful. He starts off saying they are not, you can't take them as absolute authoritative. Now he's saying they're doubtful. And then he had, he had six meditations. And in the second meditation, he, he shows that you can take a piece of wax and look at it, smell it, and um, taste it even. But then after it is subject to intense heat, it's nothing like it was before. Therefore, you cannot trust your senses. So he goes from saying they're not Absolutely authoritative to saying that you don't put any confidence in them at all. Now that's a fine sounding argument. Descartes gives you a fine sounding argument. He starts out talking like he's with you, which is what competing worldviews will do. We're with you. You know, you can't deny this. But then it gets worse and worse and worse. So as you are developing your world and life view, if it isn't according to the Bible, it's wrong. Remember the third question of our catechism. What did the scriptures what did, no the second one? Uh, what rule has God given to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament is the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify Him. So all of us, and especially young people, be very careful. 
Be very careful who you read. Be sure you compare them to the Bible. A prime example, won't surprise you that I bring this up, of where relying on just our senses without the Word of God as our guide is creation and evolution. We take the same evidences and come up with totally different worldviews, knowledge of how things were begun. And it's, and it's all laid out there for, you know, the evolution and the creationists to take. You know, the layers. You know, you could go on and on. And, you know, someplace from Scripture it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. No. Not knowledge. Wisdom. Knowledge is out there, but it needs to be interpreted. Right. Absolutely. It's not at the end. It's at the beginning. You presuppose this is God's Word. <clears throat> so, in developing a Christian world and life view, I hope that is helpful. I try not to get too deep into any of these guys, but I just want to show you enough of them to make you realize some of the things we're up against, how subtle their teaching is. Anybody have anything else on that? That's the end of what I wanted to say. Yeah, so back in back in First John, I mean, John did see with his eyes. We haven't seen with our eyes. He's seen with his, but he also had the word with him. I mean, Jesus was there in front of him. We don't have Jesus in front of us. What we've got is this. Yeah. And so we so we trust John. Yeah, and I'm not telling you don't don't trust your senses or don't trust your mind and rationalizing. These are tools, but they're not totally authoritative. And your senses are reliable. Your mind is reliable. So you use both. Well, they aren't reliable if they disagree with the word. Yeah, your senses are not. That, that's why you have. Yeah, that's why you don't do it. With, yeah. Uh, your senses can be fooled. I mean, you've seen the Rogers before. But generally, they're reliable. The, the one thing, though, to keep in mind always is that, <clears throat> is that in, in all cases, while God does work through and, and, and help people to understand the truth, we are fallen, and that needs to be the bottom line. So our mind is good, but we are fallen and sinful. And so our sinfulness is going to get a, get in the way of truth sometimes. Yeah. The heart of man point. is desperately wicked. wicked. Yeah. And Romans 1 teaches us that man runs away from God as fast as he can. So we don't believe it because the CDC says it. Yeah. <coughs> Beware. Beware. Just like Colossians says, beware or see to it that no one takes you captive. And then, of course, we have the famous words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 that says, The wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. The wisdom of the world is foolish. And if you don't believe it, read these six guys that I mentioned. Or even just read about them. And be thankful that God has opened your eyes to see that the authority comes from His Word.
Truth comes from His Word. Anything else? Like I said, I just hope that's helpful to you. Uh, let's go to Isaiah 51 now. And I want to reread, I want us to reread the first eight verses. Do I have a volunteer? Y'all listen to me while I'm enough. Landon, I'll let you read that. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, and I, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastland will hope for me, and for my arms they will wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look to the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, but they who dwell in it will die in like manner. I'm sorry, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know the righteous, know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not for the reproach of men, nor be dismayed by their revilings. For the moth will eat them, eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. We studied through this last week, and Chase brought up a question in verse 6, and then several other people have asked me about it. I wasn't really going to uh, discuss that a whole lot, but it's worth doing it because we run into this kind of stuff every day from other Christians about what this kind of language means. Like in verse 6 in the uh, New American Standard, it says, The sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. Alright, so it sounds kind of like there's not going to be any more sky or earth again, right? Heavens and the earth are just going to be put away. Alright? And this, I forget who it was, pointed out to me, or asked me, I think, my view on Second Peter 3, 5-7. through 7. And let's turn there, because that is similar language to what we had uh, looked at in Isaiah. And you're going to come across these kind of people that have a kind of a sensational view. They don't get their exegesis from the Bible. They do eisegesis. That's reading into the Scriptures what you think it ought to say instead of taking out of the Scriptures what God says. 
All right, I'm going to read Second Peter. Let me get in the right Peter here. Second Peter three five through seven. All right, Second Peter three, beginning in verse five. <clears throat> For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, you don't have to write all this down because you're going to get it in your notes. But I just didn't want you to look ahead. So... Um, but you will get it in your notes if you just want to listen. <coughs> Alright, this is a supplemental teaching to Isaiah 51.6. And we're going to concentrate on these verses in Second Peter 3 that I just read. Okay? Now, first of all, this is eternal salvation compared to anything temporal. temporal, temporal. Um, these things that are going on Isaiah and Peter says they're temporal, but there is eternal, and that's what you need to be concerned about. Understanding the eternal as opposed to the temporal helps us to fear God and not man. And this theme becomes even more prominent later in Isaiah 51 and in other places that we will be studying in Isaiah. Do not worry about temporary things. Look to the eternal. Alright, so this question has been raised. Okay, let's start over here with um, Alder. Um, look up these verses. You look up Matthew 5.18 and then let's have Matthew 24.35 looked up. Okay. Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot or tittle or whatever will pass away. He assumes that the earth, heaven and earth is going to pass away. 20, Matthew 24.35. Alright. Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away. Alright, now, it sounds surely like heaven and earth is going to be gone, doesn't it? Jesus says it. Uh, who's going to argue with that? Well, let's see what he means by that. Alright, we're in Matthew 24, 29 next. Let's just go down the road. Matthew 24, 29. Ezekiel 32, 7. That'd be you, Henry. And Isaiah 13, 9 through 10. Okay, go ahead and read when you get there. Immediately after the distress of those who 
those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Sounds like everything's going to be going wrong, but stars and moon and all that. Okay, now let's have uh, Ezekiel 32.7 read. When I step you out, I will cover the heavens and darken your stars. I will cover the sun with the clouds, and the moon will not give its light. Okay, and then Owen, Isaiah 13.9-10. through 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cool with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolation and to destroy the sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So we have these kind of passages in the scriptures. and But these three last three passages that we read, if you look at the context, they prophesy the downfall of Jerusalem. They prophesy the downfall of Egypt and Babylon. That was the end of those three uh, uh, cities and states, nations. So, apocalyptic language like that does not necessarily mean the world is passing away. It means that the rulers are passing away. Alright, Dinah, will you look up Genesis 1, verses 16 through 18? God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. So these things represent rulers and governors. The luminaries in the sky represent the leaders. So this means there's an end to those leaders. Alright, now, looking at Second Peter 3, 5-7, through 7, and I get a lot of this from a guy you need to be aware of, but sometimes he's good. Meredith Klein in Kingdom Prologue. He handles this passage better than anybody I've ever come across. So looking back at that, it's what we see in 2 Peter 3, 5 and 7, 5 through 7, is that, first of all, notice that Peter does not say that the world is going to be destroyed. He doesn't say that. He says that the first, and even if he did, in verse 6, he says that the first world was destroyed, flooded with water. But he says the world of this present time and earth are being reserved for fire. He doesn't say that it's going to be destroyed. It's the ungodly men in both places that are destroyed. All of the ungodly men were destroyed at the flood. And he says here, all ungodly men are going to be destroyed. Now Peter speaks of the world before the flood which was destroyed by the flood in verse 6. 
through which the world at that time was destroyed. Verse 5 shows it was created. Verse 6 shows that that world was destroyed. Even though the heavens and the earth remained, it was renewed. The wicked men were destroyed. And then he speaks of the present heaven and earth which are being reserved for fire in verse 7. Okay, so we have the first world which was destroyed. The second world, we're now in it. And it's going to be... Um, there's going to be an end of it. Alright, now both times the ungodly are totally destroyed. Now the pre-flood earth perished and was renovated. With the world we're in now, this is the renovated earth from the first world. This present world will also perish by being renovated. Whatever the fire does, it renovates the earth. The new heavens and the new earth were inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ. At the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth will be consummated. It was inaugurated its resurrection. It will be consummated when He comes back. So, this present world will be renovated at that time. So, we have three stages of earth history. Number one is the pre-flood. Number two is the post, the, the world that was from the post-flood to the resurrection of Christ. That world was renovated by water. And then we'll have the consummated heaven and earth, which is renovated by fire. So we have pre-flood, post-flood, and then um, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, that's about the best I can do. Anybody have any other thoughts on that? So is the idea that as Christianity goes forth and the percentage of believers on the earth becomes greater in culture and life and worldviews of Christianity is more prominent, the curses are being lifted. And so we will have the, you know, the Old Testament <clears throat> prophecy of the lion and the lamb and the child and the ass and stuff like that coming more real. Yeah. And then ultimately when Christ returns it will be redeemed completely. Yeah. The earth is the curse is being rolled back and it will be no more curse at the return of Christ. Mike? Yeah, you have all of those kind of languages and through Revelation too and the the seals and the bolts and all that, and the stars falling to earth, yeah. which would pretty much destroy the place. I think if we only got one star, <laughs> yeah, fell to earth. So, yeah, just beware when you're reading apocalyptic language. A lot of it is symbolic, and to prove that that it's symbolic, turn to Revelation one one, and we'll stop here. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to literally signify 
to his bond servants, things which must shortly take place. So he goes right off the bat, the hermeneutic for this here is symbolic. And then he goes on and he talks about the seven stars in verses 16 through 20. And he says, the seven stars of this, the seven lampstands are this. Christ hermeneutic is very clear in Revelation chapter 1 that it's not to be taken literally. He interprets the stars and the candlesticks as churches and pastors. Okay, we have to stop there. It's getting late. And uh, Mike, I'll ask you to close us in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. For the great teaching we get here.